to you today about really why we do what we do. Um, and uh, we're going to stream this. This will be uh, live on Facebook. And by the way, on our Facebook page, you can always catch up with anything that you missed. Uh, and we put the slides up there as well. So it's, it's kind of fun. It feels a little bit like a webinar when you watch it. Uh, but welcome to those of you who are joining us on Facebook. If you guys have any comments about how things look over here, we are at the theater. So you're at home, but we're at the theater. So if you have any comments for how it looks, uh, uh, about how it looks, please let us know and give us some feedback there. But welcome to you watching online as well. And um, so I want to talk to you about why we do uh, what we do. Uh, this church is two and a half years old. We, we started... Yeah, it's on the screen. We started here um, in September 2016 on Saturday mornings, remember? How many of you were here Saturday mornings? Yeah, we're, I am Jewish. I'm from a Jewish background, but that's not why we did Saturday mornings. We just couldn't get the building on Sunday mornings. And so we did Saturday mornings. And then we said, well, we're going to reach more people if we switch to Sunday mornings. So we switched to Sunday mornings and we couldn't get the building. And so we moved down the road to a brand new hotel. And we're at the hotel for a while. And the rent at the hotel is a little higher. And so the movie theater said, hey, we found a way to, so that you can come back and you can be here on Sundays. And we said, oh, great. We'd love to come back on Sundays. And so now we're back on Sundays. So, you know, Saturday, Sunday, hotel, church, all over the place. Um, and we've learned in this, in this journey that church is not about a location. Uh, it's not. I mean, hey, it's good. They're going to have a nice Christian movie playing in here uh, after we're done called Breakthrough, which we watched here last week on, on Saturday morning. Uh, but sometimes, you know, they play Pet Cemetery in here. You know, <laughs> they play whatever. So it, it, we learn that the church is not the building. The church isn't even the day. Uh, the, the church is the people. It's the people who make up the church. And uh, what a privilege to have journeyed with, with many of you for the last two and a half years. And now we turn the page uh, and we come back here, okay? Um, so I wanted to go over why we do what we do and then talk to you about something um, that I think is very current, very relevant to your lives today. The, the, the reason why we exist, okay? Some churches have, you know, mission statements and vision statements and process statements and all these kinds of things. And... That's all good, but I just call it the reason why we exist. Um, it's, not, it's not to make people, you know, happy and give them a positive kind of church thing. And, you know, maybe they're not happy in their church and they want to come to our church and maybe they'll like our church better than their church. And that's not why we launched this church. Um, we launched it to reach people uh, and to reach new people. And to reach the one who is far from God, the one who is far from God. And that may be a person who's, who's anti-church. That may be a person who's de-churched. Maybe they grew up in church as a child and they left it a long time ago. They may be post-church. So they may say, well, you know, I'm beyond that. Church is archaic. Uh, they may be de-churched, post-church, anti-church, whatever unchurched completely. We're trying to reach people who are far from God, but also that together we would become passionate followers of Jesus. Do you know what a passionate follower of Jesus is? Some people would say, well, you know, if a person comes to church every Sunday, they must be a passionate follower of Jesus. Nope doesn't necessarily mean they're a passionate follower of Jesus. They could come, they could come to church for all kinds of reasons. They may like uh, a girl here. 
<laughs> or a boy here, or, you know, they may like the seats, or they may like the coffee and the tea, whatever. doesn't necessarily mean they're a passionate follower of Jesus. Oh, well, but they give money. That must mean they're a passionate follower of Jesus. No, it means they give money. Maybe they give money for all kinds of reasons. Can I tell you, some people in churches give money because if it's known how much money they give, then they can have their way. So if they give a lot of money, then they think, oh, now I can sort of have power and control. So it's not just because you give money. It's not just because you come to church. Well, I'm involved. I volunteer. So that must mean I'm a passionate follower of Jesus. You know, I hope with the sound and the video and the lights and the kids and all these things, it must mean, not necessarily. It could mean that. Do you know what a really good indicator is that a uh, your loss, I, I came out and I came in. Do you know what a really good indicator is? That they reach the one who's far from God. That it kind of goes in a circle. Ask yourself the question, have I ever led anyone in my lifetime to Christ? Ever in my lifetime? That's a question that makes people very quiet. And makes church people very, very quiet. Because the answer for most church people is no. Or I don't think so. Or how would I know? And yet the, the great commission of Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And teaching them all these things. We, we, that's a question that... So how do you know you're passionate? Well, when you're reaching the one who's far from God. Now, we live in the province of Quebec. Do you know what's going on in the province of Quebec as far as reaching the one who's far from God is? This is a unique place, my friends. This is a very unique place. So the province of Quebec has the worst statistics in the Western world in terms of the percentage of people who identify with a relationship with Jesus Christ as expressed in being part of some sort of local faith gathering. could even be a small group. The, the percentage of people who, who are like that in this province is around 2%. Okay, you, you see statistics like that in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan. This is Quebec in North America, in Canada. It is the worst in terms of statistics in the Western world. There are missionaries that come from other parts of the world to this province to reach the one who is far from God. It suggests that we have difficulty doing this in this province. It doesn't mean that the church is dead. It just means that we have difficulty reaching people who are far from God. Uh, and this is a province of 8 million people. And it's a very unique province and a very unique culture because of its history, yes? How many of you grew up in the, in the Roman Catholic setting in this province? Okay, so you know what I mean by this, right? So now, the, after the, the so-called quiet revolution, the churches are largely empty in the province of Quebec. These gorgeous buildings... Uh, some of them extremely old, but they're emptying out. And the, the younger generation is not necessarily attracted to them. Um, and we talked about the nuns, you know, the N-O-N-E-S, not the N-U-N-S. 
But the nuns, the generation of young people who are growing up saying, you know what, I have no religious affiliation, and I don't want to be affiliated with any type of religion. And so not only that, but what's going on now in this province, it, which, which seems to be with a great deal of controversy, is that this has now gone political, this whole question of what you do with your faith. Any of you heard of Bill 21? So Bill 21, this is, um, this is uh, a lot of controversy. So the, the, the current um, uh, government, the Coalition Avenir du Québec, uh, wants to put this through. And the idea is that people in certain positions of authority, you know, doctors and even school teachers and judges and police officers and so on, they cannot wear any kind of religious paraphernalia while they're in their job. Uh, and this has created quite, a, quite a, a backlash. And it's sort of like, well, they need to keep their faith to themselves while they're on the job. And because they may, they may, if they don't, they may use their, use their authority as a, you know, judge, police officer, school teacher, even doctor, they, to coerce people to become like them. And they shouldn't do that. They shouldn't use their, their, their position to coerce people to adopt their faith system. So in other words, keep quiet. <laughs> don't, don't be public about your faith if you have that type of job. And this has created quite a, quite a, a backlash. You know, you see some of the images, hatred wrapped in secularism by the CAQ. You know, I, I like this one. Um, uh, judge me for what's in my head, not on my head. And some people have said, you know, well, what this really is, is this is a secret backlash against one religion in particular, against Islam. And if Islam didn't come into Quebec, none of this would happen. And there's some people who think that. And um, um, Francois Legault has, has gone on record and he says, you know, people will have the right to wear a religious sign in the street. Uh, they will have the right to wear a religious sign for most of the, the for the vast majority of jobs in Quebec. Uh, and this is his kind of apologetic and trying to defend this whole thing. It's created quite an uproar. But the idea is if you work in the public sphere, you need to keep your faith quiet and you need to keep it a secret until you, you know, take the suit off or put the police badge down, et cetera, et cetera. Your faith needs to be a kind of a secret faith. So here in Quebec, this is a, this is a very, very lively topic. I don't know where you fall on, the, on this issue. I have heard people fall on both sides of the, of the issue, even folks uh, who come from countries where, you know, it was very overt, the religious... Uh, clothing and so on, and they've come here, and I've heard some of them say, we're glad for this law, because this law, we, we saw what the reverse is in the country that we came from. And then, of course, I've heard others who said, well, this is a terrible thing. People have a right to express their faith. Uh, they have a right to, we have a constitutional right, and so on, and so on, and so I don't know where, where you fall uh, in this whole argument, but it's very, very relevant for, wow, less than 2% is who we're reaching. And uh, it, the, this government was elected on that platform. 
So the, the Coalition Avenir du Québec ran on that platform and got elected fairly easily with that as part of their platform. So it's a very, very controversial subject here. But the question is, well, is it, you know, should we keep our faith secret? Should we close our mouths? And should we, what's, what, what do we do with this whole thing? Um, and I want to give you uh, today... With, with this whole thing, this whole idea of to reach the one who is far from God so that together we would become passionate followers of Jesus, I want to give you three reasons why you should share your faith. I'll leave it to you whether or not if you're a doctor, a nurse, you know, whatever, lawyer, judge, teacher, whether or not you feel you can close your mouth in that sphere. I, I will leave that to you to wrestle with. But I want to give you three reasons in general why you should be just in your general life, sharing your faith. It's not so that we can improve statistics. Um, it's not so that we can boast in Canada that, oh, wow, now we're getting more and more Christian people. That's not the reason. But I want to give you three reasons why. Um, and this is from a story in the book of Acts in the New Testament that, that kind of relates to this. And it's in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4. So if you want to turn there or you know, maybe you have an electronic Bible, you want to look there. We'll just look at those two chapters really this morning and um, make some observations. So what you have is right after the resurrection of Jesus, um, you have the, the birth of the early church. You have the, the, the promise of the Holy Spirit. You have the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and you have this new movement, if you will, and the church is born. And uh, we, pick up, we pick up the story uh, in Acts chapter 3, and you have Peter and John. These are two leaders. These are two people who were disciples, followers of Jesus. And they're going up to the temple in Jerusalem. It's still standing. It's not the year AD 70 when it was torn down. It was obviously before then. And they go up to the temple at the typical, normal uh, Jewish time to pray, which in our time would be about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so they, they, they're going through their business and, and they see something. They're going through their regular daily routine. This was a custom. This was a tradition. The Jewish people would go to the temple to pray a couple of times a day. This was one of them. And as they're doing this, you've got a, a, a man who is brought to the steps there of the temple. And he's being carried to the, the gate, the entrance, um, and he's put there by people every day to, to beg for money. And this man cannot walk. We're told from the story, that, from the writer, that he's, he's born that way. He's lame from birth, so he cannot walk, no use of his legs. And Peter and John see this, and they see the man put there uh, to, to beg. And when he saw Peter and John try to enter the temple, he asks them for money, as he does to everyone. And then it says in verse 4, Peter looked straight at him. It's interesting, you know. It says when he saw Peter and John, then it says Peter looked straight at him. So how he saw them and how, how they saw him was kind of two different things. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. And so the man gives him his attention, expecting to maybe get some, some money. And Peter says something very unusual. He says, I don't have any money. Silver and gold, I do not have. But what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this one who, who, who died and rose from the dead, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
walk. Takes him by the right hand, so presumably Peter is right-handed, and he helps him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Now, this is a man who never walked a day in his life. He's born not knowing how to walk. His, his feet and his ankles become strong. He jumps up to his feet, and he begins to walk. How many of you, you have little children, you watch them walk when they start to learn to walk? When they start to learn to walk, it's quite amusing, yes? You watch them, and they fall all over the place, and, you know, they put their hands up in the air to try and balance themselves, and then they start figuring it out, and then they, they start smiling, and then they can't stop walking. They're just walking all over the place. Well, this guy, he never walked a day in his life. He never had the experience of a little child learning how to walk. And all of a sudden, he's walking, and he's jumping, and he's excited, and he's, and he's praising God, it says. And when all the people saw him walking, and praising God, they recognize him and say, hold the phone here. This is the guy who, who was brought to the front. He's one of these beggars. Like, look at this. And the people, it says, are filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So while the man is doing that, he grabs a hold of Peter and John. In verse 13, while the man held on to Peter and John, presumably, maybe he thinks he's going to fall down. Maybe he's so excited. Maybe, maybe he thinks maybe if they leave, it will leave and he'll be crippled again. But for whatever reason, he's holding on to Peter and John and all the people are astonished. This is done in the public square, in the public eye. All right. You know, secret faith. Don't wear your whatever. Well, this is done right in the public eye. And people are astonished, and they come running into another part of the temple called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter sees this, he looks at all this crowd that's starting to gather, and he says, why are you surprised by this? He says, fellow Israelites, why are you surprised? Why do you stare at us as if it's by our own power or our own godliness that made this man walk. Why are you so surprised? He says, here's what's going on. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's a way Old Testament reference to God. That God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. You had him crucified. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pontius Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. He's recapping the whole, the whole story of Jesus's death. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. It is by faith in the name of Jesus that this man whom you see now has been made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as all of you can see. It's done right there, right out there in the public eye. And then he continues and he gives them a kind of a little sermonette. And he says, I, you, fellow Israelites, he's one of them, fellow Israelites, I know you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. And this is how God fulfilled his whole plan. He foretold all of this through the prophets that the Messiah would suffer. So repent, you have an open door, he's saying. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago. 
For Moses said, again, this is way back from the book of Deuteronomy, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your own people, and you must listen to everything he tells you. So Peter is saying, this is the one who has been raised up. It is no, no one else. It is Jesus himself, and it's through faith in Jesus that this man has been made healed. I hope you get it. I hope you understand. Jesus is the one who has done this. It's not us. It's him. Uh, now, that's all, that's all well and good, but this is done in the public eye, in the public sphere. And what happens immediately is that amongst this crowd, you have some temple officials and leaders who are watching this whole thing happen. And they're very, very bothered by what is going on. And this is where you have, to, you have to put yourself back in time. You say, well, how can they be bothered? How can they be frustrated? How can they be upset by what is going on? It's a good thing. I mean, what's the problem? If, if that happened here, if that happened in the 21st century, everybody would be super excited. Well, that's not the case back then. Because the people who ran the temple, uh, the, the aristocracy, the, they're called the Sadducees, the people who ran it, they had a real, real problem with what Peter and John are saying publicly because the Sadducees had a, a vicious um, uh, discontent and dislike of this idea of resurrection. So the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead, they detested this idea. They did not believe in such things. They said it's impossible. Resurrection does not happen. And here you are. We run the temple. And here you are. And you're coming into this temple. And you're talking about this man who was allegedly raised from the dead. And this irritates them and angers them. And they run the temple. They control the temple. An easy way for you to remember it today in the 21st century, the Sadducees, they were sad you see because they didn't believe in the resurrection and we see this all throughout the new testament we see paul get into debates with them about this so they had a big issue with this again because they dominated they controlled the whole thing they controlled the whole worship system they employed everybody they controlled it wasn't the pharisees who did that it was the sadducees and so the sadducees hear this nonsense talking about the resurrection of jesus and they say well you need to stop this right now and so they're very disturbed that again proclaiming in jesus the resurrection of the dead and so they seize them the time of prayer had probably finished by then. Maybe a couple of hours had passed since this dramatic, public, miraculous thing takes place. And so it's starting to get dark outside. They seize them and they throw them in jail until the next day. And then they're going to make them appear in front of the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin that Jesus appeared in front of just a few weeks prior. And so this is what's going to happen. This is the plan. So they spend the night in prison. It could be that the man who was healed was also in prison with them. We're not sure. But anyway, the next day, the elders, the teachers of the law, they meet in Jerusalem. They're going to stand. Uh, the Sanhedrin is going to meet. Uh, this is sort of like a Jewish ruling court. Uh, but it's dominated by the Sadducees, who were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in such things as resurrections. And you've got the same people involved in the execution of Jesus. You've got Caiaphas, you've got John, Alexander, members of the high priest family. Most of these people are Sadducees. And they bring Peter and John out before them, and they start to interrogate them. And they say, by what power or name did you do this? In other words, it's interesting because they don't say, Jesus has not risen from the dead. They don't even address it. They say, by what power or name did you do this? If, if they had an issue with the resurrection, why didn't they say, listen, this Jesus never rose from the dead. Stop saying it. 
No, they say, by what power or name did you do this? And then Peter, it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are asked how he was healed, then hear ye, hear ye. You know, then know this. All you people of Israel, let me make it clear for you. Let me make it blunt for you. Let me make it straight for you. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Oh, there it is again. That this man stands before you healed. First reason why you need to share your faith. Very, very simple. Kindness. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness. So we're going about our business. We're going to the regular time of prayer. We're doing what all the Jews in Jerusalem did. We go to the time of prayer and we pray. We see this man who, who is lame from birth, never walked a day in his life. And we made a decision to be kind to this man. We knew that the power of God would heal this man and we gave him something out of kindness. First reason why you should share your faith is out of kindness. And an act of kindness doesn't even have to start with a religious overtone. I mean, even if you're going through your day and you see somebody who needs kindness reflected toward them and some kind of gesture of kindness that can open a door eventually for a conversation about what you believe because they may ask you why are you being so nice to me why are you being so kind to me the and peter and john weren't looking for an opportunity an opportunity came their way and you will find this in your daily life. Those of you who profess to be followers of Jesus, you'll find it in your daily life. There's always going to be opportunities for you to reflect kindness. And when you do that, be ready because you may be asked why you're being so nice to me. Kindness, it's a basic reason to share your faith. It is by the name of Jesus that this man stands healed before you. Silver and gold, we have none, but what we have, we give to you. I'll, I always get afraid when I read that verse because I find today in, in many church circles, it's the, the reverse is true. We have a little too much silver and gold and a little too little, too little of the power of God and too much silver and gold. Sometimes, you know, the, you, go, you, you see some, some church contexts and it's just sort of, wow, there's a, there's a lot of materialism a lot of materialism that Christians can struggle with. And sometimes when there isn't that materialism, the power of God is more vibrant in our lives. I think it was Thomas Aquinas I read somewhere who said to, to the Pope of his time, as he looked at the Pope and the, and the church of, of that time and saw all of the power and all of the money. And he said, you know, in Acts 4, silver and gold have I not. Well, now you have too much silver and gold. I guess the reverse is probably true that you don't have the power of God now. Quite an indictment uh, from Thomas Aquinas, but I always read that passage with some fear um, as, I, as I watch us struggle with materialism these days. And so anyway, Peter continues to these people who have him on trial, and he says, Jesus, this one who was raised from the dead, he's the stone that you builders rejected. Ouch. 
which has become the cornerstone. This is a quote out of the Psalms from Psalm 118. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Wow, that's very, very direct. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that these are regular people, they're unschooled, these people are fishermen, I mean, they're, they're stunned by this and they're astonished by this and they, say, they take note, it says, that these men had been with this one called Jesus and they could see the man standing there who had been publicly healed. He's standing there. So there's nothing that they can say. They get the Sanhedrin together, they confer together, and they say, what are we going to do with these men? We're in a real pickle. Because they did a public thing. Everybody knows that this man was lame before, that he was born that way. Everybody in Jerusalem knows that they've done this. We can't deny it. We can't say it's hocus pocus. The man is standing right there. It's been done in public. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them not to speak any longer to anyone in this name. Keep your mouth closed. Close your mouth. You, you, you have your faith, but you're going to keep it a secret. You will not speak publicly any longer in this name. And then they called them in again, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Keep your mouth shut. And Peter and John, they reply, and they say this, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you? Um, which is right in God, to listen to you or to him? Uh, you be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and about what we have heard. Reason number two, we cannot help speaking. There is a compulsion that we have to speak about what we have seen and heard. We can't help it. We spent time with Jesus. We watched him die. We watched him rise from the dead. We, we experienced him. We can't help but tell you. We have a compulsion to tell you. And Paul elaborates on this, and he talks about how the love of Christ compels us. We cannot keep our mouth closed. We have to talk about what we've seen and what we've heard and what we've experienced, which is better for us to listen to you or for us to listen to God. And they know that they will be punished for doing that. They know that the, the, the Sadducees who control the temple and the whole worship system are going to punish them, that they have the authority to do that. They have the legal right to do that. And they say, you know what? You be the judge. But we cannot help. We can't keep our mouths closed. We can't help it. This is who we are. This is what we've experienced. Paul says it this way to the Corinthians. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And then he says this, we don't look at people the same way as a result. We don't look at people with a worldly point of view as a result. We look at them differently. Once we regarded Christ in this way, in a worldly sort of way, but we don't do this any longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and all this is from God 
who is, who is reconciling the world, not just the Jewish people, but the world, to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. We can't help it. We look at people differently now because Christ's love compels us. When you, when you have that kind of compulsion, the way that you look at other people should change. It shouldn't be, oh, you know, this guy at work, what am I going to do to get ahead of him? Well, what am I going to do to get ahead of her? And, you know, well, she said this and she did this. And, you know, I'm just so irritated by them. And it just sort of consumes your day. That's looking at people from a worldly point of view. When you look at people through the love of Christ, you're looking at them and you're wondering about their eternal soul. And you're wondering, where is this person going when they die? What's, what's in the soul of this person? I know that they may be mean and nasty to me and all that, but if I look at them that way, that's a worldly point of view. Am I looking at them through the love of Christ or am I just looking at them through the little tiny little lens of this world? And when Christ is in you, you should, you should experience a change where you start to see people differently through the lens of Christ's love rather than just the way that this world looks at people. And this is what Peter and John are, are saying when they're under in this trial. Christ's love compels us. We can't keep our mouths closed. So you hate the resurrection, you control the temple. Well, you, you be the judge. Should we listen to God or should we listen to you? After further threats, they let them go because if they punish them, and the people who saw the miracle see them punish them, they're going to turn. So they're in a political stalemate, and they say, well, uh, we've got to let them go. I mean, what are we going to do? They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what happened. For the man who was miraculously healed, get this, was over 40 years old, 40-plus years. So I'm 48. I cannot imagine what it would be like to have never walked and all of a sudden to be able to walk as a little child. Can you imagine that? I mean, it usually takes little children, you know, some time. This man, there's an instantaneous thing that happens in his life and it is done in the public eye like nobody can deny it. And you don't see the Sanhedrin, you don't see the Sadducees saying, Jesus has not risen from the dead. They never say it. They just say, keep your mouth closed. Don't teach in his name. Don't talk about his resurrection. But they never, ever say he did not rise from the dead because they knew that he did. It was so public. It was so in front of everybody's face. And to see this miracle happen, which authenticated the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, they've got their hands tied behind their back. So all they can say to Peter and John is, keep your mouth closed. But they say, we can't. Christ's Love compels us. And the third reason why you should, you should share your faith today um, is because of truth. I don't know why we get so disturbed and so irritated uh, in the culture today when we talk about this word truth, especially when it comes to matters of religion. 
there are many things that we'll acknowledge as being true. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's true that you're aging. It's very true. You know, it's true that probably all of you brushed your teeth this morning. If you didn't brush them this morning, you'll probably brush them tonight. You know, there's just certain truths in life, you know. And you, if you survey your day, you'd say, well, this, there, there are truths. And it doesn't really matter where you go. You know, there's a truth. Like, I'm standing on this stage because of gravity. You're sitting in the seat because of gravity. Like, it doesn't matter if you acknowledge it or you don't acknowledge it. It's true. Why is it that when it comes to matters of religion and spirituality, we dismiss this? And we dismiss the idea that truth could actually exist in matters of religion. This is really annoying to us. This is a big problem for us because what we want is, listen, all roads lead to God. That's in our heart. That's, we would love that to be true. We would love it if all roads led to God. You know, we would love it if the old adage of the elephant, you ever heard this before? You've got an elephant and a bunch of blindfolded people who've never seen an elephant before. And they walk up to the elephant, they're all blindfolded, and they put their hands on the elephant, and one writes it down this way, and one writes it down that way, and they all write it down in different ways. But they're all talking about the same thing. And so people say, well, it's the same with religion. I mean, you know, all roads lead to the same God, and it doesn't matter, you know, you're Muslim, you're Jewish, you're Christian, you're Sikh, you're whatever, it doesn't matter. It, it all leads to the same God. We would love that to be true. Do you know what the problem is with that? All these religions all teach different things. All of them, they all teach wildly different things. If you've ever studied them, you'll see that they're all over the place in terms of what they say about whether there is a God, whether there isn't a God, who Jesus is, who Jesus isn't, what the afterlife is like or what it isn't like. I mean, they're all over the place, all of these things. And they can't all be true. They all say different things. Many of them say totally contradictory things. But we, we, we shudder when we think of the idea that maybe truth exists in matters of religion. We shudder. Well, this is what Peter and John believed. They, they say to the people, salvation is found in no one else. That's really, that's a statement about truth. For there is no other name under heaven. That's a big scope. Under heaven, that's pretty big. No other name under heaven given to mankind, not just the Jewish people, but given to mankind by which we must be saved. Wow. So they believed that Jesus was truth. And they believed that it was their responsibility because Christ's love compelled them to speak the truth. It wasn't, they're not bashing other religions. They're not saying this religion's bad, this religion's bad, this is bad. No, they're saying there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And he proved it by ri rising from the dead. This is what Jesus, Jesus even said it himself. Do you know the phrase? Uh, he, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one, exclusive term, no one comes to the Father except through me. 
oh my goodness, that's a really narrow claim. You say that's so narrow-minded. You Christians are so narrow-minded. You think you're Jesus the only way. That's so bad. You're so narrow-minded. You should keep your mouth closed like the Coalition Avenue to Quebec says. You're so narrow-minded. Narrow-mindedness is a very relative term. It's just as narrow-minded to say all roads lead to God. It's just as narrow-minded. I could say to somebody like that, you know, you're so narrow-minded, you don't believe that there could be truth in matters of religion. It's a relative term, is it not? The question is, did Jesus rise from the dead or didn't he? Because if he did, which the Sadducees themselves don't say he did, they don't say he did not. If he did, then again, as we talked about in the Easter series, who needs God? If he did, then maybe what he said is true. Then maybe when he, when he made an exclusive claim there, maybe he's right. Paul says it this way. You know, you think about the elephant analogy and all roads lead to God and all of that. Well, Paul, he, he, he has issues with this. He says in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on one whom, whom they haven't believed in? And how can they believe in him unless they've heard of him? And how can they hear of him unless someone tells them? And how can someone tell them unless someone is sent to tell them? So for Paul, there must be a moment where a person consciously calls on Jesus. This is what must happen. And there's a, you know, there's a close, a close um, relative to this whole elephant, uh, elephant analogy. It's called inclusivity. And the idea that, you know, all these religions from all over the place, well, you know, maybe some of the people who follow all of these things are, will be saved anyway because, uh, you know, yes, you're only saved by Jesus, but they'll be saved because there's something of Jesus in their religion. So they don't need to consciously call on Jesus or even know his name or even know who he is. Wow, Paul would have issues with this. Paul would say, well, I don't have to call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, quoting from the Old Testament. The issue is, did Jesus rise from the dead or didn't he? And if he did, wow, when you're out being kind, you have opportunity. When you look at people, you look at them with different eyes and wonder about the soul of the person rather than competing with the person. And you have a responsibility to acknowledge the truth of Jesus and his resurrection to reach the one who is far from God so that together we would become passionate followers of Jesus. And I wonder if the band would come and uh, they're going to close uh, with a song, He is Faithful, I think you guys did at the beginning. And um, I wonder if there are those of you who are in the room today and you say, you know, it bothers me. It bothers me because I've been going to church for a long time and you know, I, I, I think I'm a Christian and I, and I do what I do and I, you know, I take my relationship with, with Christ as seriously as I can. But it bothers me, this idea of actually leading someone to the Lord, this idea of actually sharing my faith in a sense where it can be understood by somebody else. This idea of somebody who wasn't a follower of Jesus now is a follower of Jesus somehow, some way because of my influence. And it bothers me that I can't answer that question. Can I tell you, it bothers me as well. Uh, keeps me up at night. That's the reason why we 
why we launched this church, you know? It was, it was to say, hey, we need to be about the business of reaching the 98% of the province of Quebec who do not know Christ. 